0: Good morning, Community Baptist. Genesis chapter twenty six. We're at the halfway point, eh Michael? And there's Bobby. Hey brother, so good to see you. <laughs> praise the Lord so happy to have you back with us brother Amen. Genesis 26 we'll look at the first seventeen verses I've titled this message like father like son so we're going to do, I'm going to divide this up as I normally do this time into three three sections of scripture we're going to look first, At the first six verses, so read along with me in Genesis 26, 1 through 6. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all of these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heavens. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham... Obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Hmm. This is the second flood or famine, rather, not flood. It's the second famine recorded in Scripture. Each one ordained by God. To further his providential plan. You remember the first famine referenced here was when Abraham had to leave and go to Egypt. And it preceded Abraham's first deception. While they were traveling to Egypt, he went through Gerar, through Philistine, and he met the king and he presented Sarai, his wife, as his sister. That's in Genesis 12. With this famine, God appears to Isaac and says, Don't go to Egypt. Stay in this land, because this is the land that was promised. Isaac, in Gerar, meets another king of the Philistines. And he repeats his father's deception. He presents his wife. As his sister. In our passage, Isaac went to to King Abimelech, likely because the king had provision. There's a famine in the land. You want to go where there's food. Kings, they tend to accumulate stuff. He'll have stuff that Isaac can take advantage of, benefit from. God appears to Isaac, tells him, don't go to Egypt. Stay in Gerar. Gerar is where Abraham and Sarah settled back in Genesis chapter 20. This is the town in which they settled. Now, it's likely that Abimelech is not a personal name, King Abimelech. But it's likely that Abimelech is a title of Philistine kings, kind of like Pharaoh was a title of Egyptian monarchs. This Abimelech is some 75 years after Abraham's Abimelech. It's possible he could be the same guy, but not likely. And telling Isaac to live in the land that he would be shown. as he says here in our verse, God appeared to him and said, live in the land of which I shall tell you. This is echoing what God told Abraham when he appeared to him back in chapter 12. Get up and leave your people and go to the land of which I shall tell you. We are reminded that obedience to God is not dependent upon knowing all that we want to know about what is coming. These two men get up and go. To where I will show you, they got up and went. Trusting God, not knowing what lay ahead. This is informative for us. This is the pattern we need to follow. God tells Isaac to live as a foreigner and trust him to, the, to fulfill the promise of land and people that he had promised to Abraham. Abraham. dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and your descendants I give all of these lands. I will make your descendants as the stars in the heavens and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in your seed. Yahweh is confirming the oath that He had previously given to Abraham. we... History in the Bible calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the patriarchs of the faith. The promise, and I've I've reviewed this before in a previous lesson, the promise was almost verbatim, one thing different between them, but the promise was given to Abraham, renewed to Isaac, and renewed again to Jacob, as he was called later Israel. The promise of God, land and people, the one seed in which all the nations shall be blessed is that one seed that Paul mentions. Now, when God showed up to confirm the promise to Abraham, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 6, when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater he swore an oath by Himself. Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. See, when God makes a promise, when God swears an oath, He doesn't have an authority that He can appeal to. When we go into court and you got to testify, the judge tells you to put your hand on the Bible and swear to God. To tell the truth. God doesn't have a God above Him. We need to bear this in mind because when He says something, He speaks out of His character and He will not allow His character to be tarnished by something that doesn't come to pass. We can speak something and it not come to pass. God brings to pass All that he decrees. God goes so far to show this covenant with Abraham as a conditional covenant. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The covenant with Abraham was like a coin. John Bunyan said this. On one side is this unconditional promise that is fulfilled in a new covenant when Christ came and redeemed his people. On the other side of the coin is the covenant of circumcision, which gets swallowed up in the Mosaic covenant. And it delivers prosperity and land and people. If you, as it says here, Abraham, if you do like Abraham did and you follow my charge and my statutes and my commandments and my laws. Abraham listened to God and kept these things that he was told. God's charge, God's commandments, God's statutes, God's laws. All of these things Isaac had to do. All of these things Jacob had to do. And then when Moses comes, all of these things get fleshed out in more detail in the law That God gave them from Mount Sinai, and the children of Israel were told, Blessing, I will bless you if you keep my covenant. We don't know if Abraham had written down these laws and passed them on to Isaac in writing or if it was as the tradition of the ancient Near East, an oral tradition, an oral communication of these things. And that's that's how most of these ancient laws were passed down to one another. And that's why sometimes when you read in Scripture this odd pattern of repeating phrases is because it was given orally, and they structured what they were communicating in such a way that like musical lyrics or poetry, it's more likely to stick in your head. But one way or another, God communicated these precepts to Abraham, who communicate them to his children and to his children's children, so that they, the people of God, would not be left to their own wisdom. God doesn't allow his children to wander off and abide by their own wisdom. In any generation, in any covenantal status. Alright, let's go look on to verses 7-11. through So we see in verse 6, Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And in verse 7, the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for, for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. How could you say she is my sister?' Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac settles amongst the Philistines. Some of these men ask about Rebecca. Beautiful woman. How old was Isaac when he got married? Hmm? Forty. He's now older than that. I think he's about sixty, but that's not the point. The point is, he's living there, and they ask about his wife, The Bible doesn't say anything about what was going on. Just the question and then Isaac's response. Isaac's reasoning echoes what he must have heard from his father. Both men presented their wives as sisters because each man thought he would be killed by the king who only naturally would be attracted To the women, like father, like son. Each man revealed a selfish attitude, considering his life of more value than his wife's honor. One commentary observed Isaac went from such a high spiritual experience. We read in verses, the opening verses, God talked to him and reconfirmed this promise and told him he would have Countless offspring, high spiritual experience. Isaac went from that to such blatant sin because of his weakness of his own flesh and also because of his father's bad example. The fear of men. I, I was fearful that I would be killed. The fear of men is a snare and it brings much distress. After a long time, these people ask, Who is this woman? She's my sister. Time passes a long time, the Bible says. What happened during this long time? How long was it? I don't know, probably a couple, three years. After this time, the king looks out a window and he sees Isaac and Rebecca being Affectionate as a husband and wife, not as a brother and sister. Hmm? And so he comes; it comes to his mind. This this fellow lied to me. He probably was remembering what he'd been told about another guy who made the same presentation to him. Everything changed. There's nothing nothing between these two verses. This time passed. Evidently, there was peace in the land, no conflict. But he looks out the window and he sees this husband and wife, what he was told was brother and sister. And now all of a sudden you see that Abimelech is outraged. He's horrified at the thought that one of his people might have taken another man's wife. It's the same reaction that the previous king of Philistine had when he discovered that Sarah was Abraham's wife. These pagans had a high view of marriage. and They didn't have much of a high view of women in general. It's okay to take a man's sister. Not okay to take his wife. See, if, if Rebecca was a sister, anybody could have taken her and it wouldn't have been a thing. It wouldn't have been a controversy in Philistine. Nobody would have thought anything about it. But she's his wife and Abimelech can't even believe what Isaac has done. How could you say, how could you say she's your sister? John Gill says that uh, adultery was heinous, even in the eyes of these heathens, and their own practice would bring judgment and punishment on those who committed it. You just didn't go around committing adultery in pagan garar. God's people, yeah, take my wife. She's not really my wife. The pagans, how can you say that? God's people don't always follow God's charge, statutes, commandments, and laws. And when they don't, God often sends heathen to correct them. Multiple times in national Israel's history, God sent a pagan nation, Syria, Assyria, to go wage war against Israel, to bring judgment upon them for the disobedience. Jesus said in Matthew 12, speaking to the Jews, that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against the nation Because they were more righteous than the Pharisees that he was talking to. In Romans chapter 2, Paul picks up on this theme. He rebukes the Jews who relied on their perception of law keeping, saying, If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? See, whether it's pagans or whether it's the humble, those who profess to be God's people and have flagrant disregard for his law going to be confronted with correction that God sends this ought to cause us to walk humbly with one another and it ought to come it, it ought to cause rather many professing christians to repent of the cultural values that they are currently celebrating now, the truth was out. Abimelech warned his people that anyone anyone who touches them will be put to death. Serious business. Don't take the man's wife. Don't touch him or his wife. The very thought that somebody would take Rebecca, the other man's wife, Prompted the king to make this sweeping judgment. If anybody touches them, the one who does so will be put to death. We celebrate adultery in our culture today. Nobody's put to death for it. I'm not advocating that we have death For this thing, but there's no consequence. There's no shame in the eyes of our culture for this offense to God. There's no shame in many places of professing Christianity for this type of sin. We need to be mindful that our thoughts don't drift off the pure milk of God's word because we are assaulted daily when we're out there by people who celebrate sin let's go now to the last 6 verses chapter 12 through 17 of this chapter then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold And the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said, Go away from us, for you are mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. Now, Isaac's a hard worker. See, God had said, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to prosper you. He doesn't sit back and just wait for God to do these things. He goes to work. Every good farmer knows that you will get a good crop if you plant, if you water, if you do these other things that I don't know what you have to do, but farmers do. And if God brings rain and causes growth. God blessed him and prospered him. He became rich. You remember how rich Abraham was? Go back right quick to uh, chapter 13. Verses 2-4. through Genesis 13, starting in verse 2. Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. When God prospered Abraham, he worshiped. God's prospering Isaac, and he gets all of these temporal blessings. This, I'll say it again, this is what a conditional covenant is characterized by. Keep my charge and you will be blessed, you will prosper, you will have land, you will have people. This is God's covenant. Our rewards are in heaven to be realized when all things are consummated in the return of Christ. We're not told we we may have lots of money. Americans are rich by any standard. Some of us have more than others. Not sinful. Said it before, say it now. Not sinful to have wealth. Not sinful to be poor. Not particularly pious to be poor. Not particularly pious to be rich. What matters is how firmly do you hold on to the things of this world that God has given you stewardship of? We don't know how long Isaac had worked. We don't know if he faced any hardships. We get kind of a reader's digest version of Isaac in the Bible. It's interesting that Isaac lived longer than his father Abraham, and he lived longer than his son Jacob. But there's a lot less in the Bible describing the life of Isaac than there is Abraham or Jacob. He's like the guy in the middle. It's like the middle child, doesn't get much attention. Oftentimes, when Scripture doesn't tell us all we want to know, we speculate. It's not profitable. We have to be content with what He has revealed to us. In Isaac's day, as in our day, as in every day, throughout the ages, wealth attracts attention. Envy crops up. And those with a victim's mentality are likely to take action to punish those who have what they see as unfair rewards. People in our culture whine about this all the time. I won't talk about the reparations discussions going on in California right now. Different groups of people. Claiming millions of dollars each because their generations ago people were treated unfairly. They're victims because 200 years ago somebody treated their forefathers unfairly. We're not called to be envious. That's what this all boils down to. I don't have as much as I want to have and he has it. Take it from him and give it to me. You got little kids, you well know what this looks like. Comparing ourselves with others is bad practice. That's what envy does. It compares me with you. We're prone to do this when we want something we don't have. We see somebody else that has it and we envy them. These Philistines were envious And they took action to punish Isaac. They failed to understand who had prospered him. All throughout the history of God's people, the knowledge of who Yahweh is accompanied the people. And these pagans knew something about the God of Abraham and Isaac. They're not mindful of that. They're going out to punish him. Throwing dirt down all the wells that Abraham had dug. You know how valuable water is when you live in a desert climate? Here in Texas, you know, there's, there's only half of a natural lake in the whole state of Texas. We share it with Louisiana, Lake Caddo, Caddo Lake. All the other lakes are man-made. They're, they're dug wells, so to speak, because this is a large, largely arid place needs water. Somebody come break the dams, drain all the water out. Bad news. Throwing dirt down all these wells. Horrible, horrible action. Ron Crisp said, Envy betrays both an unthankful spirit towards God and an unloving spirit towards man. These people didn't fear God. These people didn't have any regard for man. It's an ugly picture. And it ain't just pagans who can be envious. But in our in our passage, it's pagans. The king of the, king of the Philistines told Isaac, get out of here. You're too powerful for us. Isaac was rich. He had animals, crops, and slaves. You remember how when Lot was captured... Abraham had a little over 300 men. He went to war against four kings, I think it was, defeated all of them, got got Lot back. Fame of that had to be known in this area. It happened right in this area. This Abimelech had to be thinking. I I remember what happened down in the valley of you know with the king of Sodom and all those people. And I don't want that. He's heard about what the God of Abraham and here's the here's Abraham's boy you're too powerful would you please go away remember back in verse 11 Abraham Abimelech said he who touches this man or his wife surely shall be put to death now the Hebrew word behind touches the Hebrew word behind the English word Touches He who touches this man or his wife conveys the idea of causing harm. Any kind of harm. Like throwing dirt down the wells. That causes harm to the man and to his wife. Abimelech said anyone who causes harm to this man or his wife shall be put to death. His men go out and they stop up all the wells. Abimelech doesn't say one peep to his people that he's sternly warned you'll be put to death if you cause harm to this man or his wife. Nothing says to the man who's been harmed, would you please go away? Arbitrary enforcement of law is a sign of a corrupt regime. A man speaks a law, doesn't enforce the law. Disrespect for the law is bred. People have contempt for the authorities. There is only one regime, one kingdom where laws are just and enforcement is just, and punishment is just. And the day is coming where everyone will stand before that king and face eternity. And nobody's going to be able to say before that king, "Eh, you know, it's not my fault because of what he did. You know, it's like in the garden. It's that woman you gave me. That argument ain't going to wash on Judgment Day. No argument is going to be able to stand the light of the supreme, perfect justice meted out by Christ on that day. So what does Isaac do? He's God's emissary. God's prospered him. He's lied. Not a perfect man. The king says, go away. What does Isaac do? Isaac then departed from there and he pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. Isaac doesn't press for property rights. He doesn't use his large company of slaves to intimidate the king. He simply says, "Okay," and he removes himself some distance. We don't know exactly how far the valley of Gerar is away from Gerar. Maybe 20 miles, not sure. But he went away from them for a ways. And he set up camp there. This kind of reminds me of Abraham. Remember when he and Lot, they were together and they were going out. And he says, we're too big to stay together. And he tells Lot, you choose where you want to go and I'll go the other place. Abraham was the senior of the two and he could have chosen where he wanted to go. But he gave Lot first choice. Isaac shows the same attitude of humility and deference. The king, who was afraid of him, tells him to go. He says, okay. And he goes out into the valley, a little distance away from the city that Abraham had settled in. So what's the what's the wrap-up of all this? Like father, like son. Abraham, flawed man, followed God. Isaac, flawed man, followed Follow God. Like mother, like daughter. We have to be aware that children will tend to have some behavior and thoughts that have been learned from their parents. Some deliberately. And some simply caught by association with those that they live with. Some, some parents, all of us who are parents rather have to be aware of this inevitable association and tendency, and we need to make it our aim in life to pass on commendable ideas and commendable habits. We can't save our kids and grandkids, but we can avoid being a stumbling block to them or anyone else. Children and grandchildren be careful what you learn from those close to you each of us is responsible for the choices we make you know just because your kids learn something from you when they're little they don't have you don't you don't accept from them the excuse well i can't help that i hit my brother he made me angry you know no it's not your brother's fault it's your responsibility you hit him Isaac learned his selfish desires and lacked respect for his wife from his father. But Isaac, not Abraham, was responsible for his actions. And so it is for each of us. So we can't drop into the blame game, holding somebody else responsible for our actions. This is the way psychopaths live. In any movie... You'll see a criminal psychopath who's holding somebody hostage and he tells the cop, you know, don't do anything or else you'll make me kill him. Right? And if something happens and he kills him, look what you made me do. Who's responsible for the action? The psychopath is, but he can't accept responsibility. He blames the other person. It was this way in the garden. It's this way when any one of us blames another for our sin. Humans can be distracted and deceived by such logic, but the judge of all flesh is not deceived by these excuses. All throughout the Bible, the Spirit has made it clear, no mortal is beyond the reach of sin, and no mortal can escape responsibility for his sin We see sin in Isaac and Abraham. Our response should not be one of condescension or reproach. But we should see in them a flawed man whom God had chosen and identify with them. We don't have any cause to sit in judgment. Why do you judge another man's servant? We don't have any cause to judge one another in that regard. We need to be humbly asking God to keep us from sin. I think one reason that we sin so easily sometimes is that we don't have a biblical view of the nature of sin. The problem with sin is not the various wrong things that we think, say, and do. It was sinful for Isaac to say, she's my sister. But the problem is not with that specific action or what he said. The problem with sin is this rebellion against God. For this cause, Christ suffered the wrath of the Father, of our Father. That's how heinous sin is. We we sing this song, we sing this hymn that has these lyrics. Tell me you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this, like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. We need the grace of God to see him rightly. And because sin is a rebellion against God, without a proper view of God, we can't have a proper view of sin. Isaiah had been about the business of pronouncing judgments on the nation of Israel. and Yahweh opened the heavens, gave the prophet a glimpse of his glory, and Isaiah was undone. He fell down before God, crushed under the weight of the sin that he apparently had not been aware of, of, hadn't been bothered by, until the glory of God was shown to him. John had a similar experience in Revelation 1. I won't go there because of time. Well, I will too. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. This is how God's people respond. This is how those called by God respond. Uh, Verse 12, starting verse 12. Then John speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. Rightly seeing and rightly fearing God will cause us to see the nature of sin rightly, not lightly. If the Lord Jesus had not touched John, had not spoken peace to John, John probably would have perished like father, like son, brings us to another father and son who are perfectly united. The son came to earth determined to fulfill the father's will and not his own. He said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my father who sent me that all... That of all He has given Me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. That's in John 6. The Son paid the price. Redemption's price for all who believe. He drank the cup of wrath so we could have peace with the Father. Child of God, Do you see him rightly? Is your soul warmed with the knowledge that he loves you? Is your soul horrified by the sin that so easily entangles you in me? The one who bore your sin in his body welcomes you and he gives repentance. A friend of mine this morning told me that the one who gave you a new heart is able to protect it and guard it for you. Trust Him. Child of the world, Do you does your sin seem like a light thing? Oh, nothing like murder. This is symptomatic of being dead in sins. Do you think of sin but lightly? Not healthy. While it is today, if you are a child of the world, while it is today, cry out to God. Cry out for mercy. Cry out for repentance and faith. This prayer of sinners is one He does here. When a sinner cries out to God for forgiveness, for faith and repentance, God hears. Do not delay. If you know not God, turn to Him. We do not know if we have tomorrow. We have what is before us now. Christ is our all in all. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Him, He is your all in all. Child of the world, if you are not in Him, He is your judge. And He sees all. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for showing us from Your Word